Dr. Rachel Clark, it's fantastic to have you on 20 Questions With. So much to talk about. I, I want to start, if I may, by asking you about your role as a palliative care doctor. What, what does it involve? Well, I work in a really busy, big thousand bedded hospital um, in England. And my job is to uh, support the teams on the hospital wards with any patients they need help with who perhaps are approaching the end of life or have really difficult symptoms like pain to look after. And a lot of people assume that palliative care is all about dying. It's about helping people die with as much comfort and dignity as possible. But I see it as almost the opposite of that. It's about trying to help patients who have a life-limiting diagnosis like a terminal cancer actually live however long remains of their life, whether it's weeks, days, hours, how do we help them live that time as richly and as fully as possible? Because even if you only have a tiny little bit of time left, you can still experience the things that make life worth living, the, the love of your family, um, tiny little joyful encounters, fresh air, sunshine. And even in a busy hospital, we should be able to support patients to experience as much of that as possible. How important in palliative care is kindness, is empathy, is humanity? Well, I, I think the short answer to that question is no more important than any other branch of medicine. It should be at the heart of every single encounter, every doctor, every nurse, every paramedic, every healthcare professional has with a patient because we're not just patching up broken livers or damaged kidneys. We are caring for human beings. Healthcare is a relationship of care between two individuals. And so kindness should be at the heart of that. But of course, in very, very busy, hectic, often understaffed conditions in our health service, that kindness can get battered away to the edges. It's not that anyone starts out as a doctor wanting to be unkind, but it's really difficult to stay in touch with that incredibly important part of healthcare when it's just being pushed to the edges by how overwhelmed with your workload you are. And I think in palliative medicine, where we perhaps do differ from some of the other medical specialties is we really recognize that when you treat a patient, you're treating a whole set, a constellation of illnesses, symptoms, but you are also first and foremost treating a person with loves, likes, hopes, dreams, desires, fears, anxieties, and you have to try your utmost to connect with them as a person because that's the only way you really have a therapeutic relationship with, with, with somebody else in a hospital. The NHS is in crisis. I mean, we've, we've heard that before, haven't we? Some would say it's in existential crisis at the moment. Where do you think our national health surface is? Well, I've now been a doctor for 14 years and I was a medical student for five years before that. So I've I've known the NHS intimately on a you know day-to-day -day basis for getting on for 20 years. And in all that time, I have never known it to be as desperately 
perilously um, understaffed and in crisis as it is at the moment. Uh, we are seeing things, I am seeing things myself every day that are unimaginably horrific at work. I think it's very important to be honest about that. We are seeing patients dying in the backs of ambulances before they can even get inside the hospital. They're dying in corridors, on trolleys, on the floor. Sometimes doctors are having to sort of size up the line of patients on trolleys in the corridor and ask themselves, which of these patients do I think is going to die soonest? Because I've got one bed inside resus, one chance of resuscitating these six patients, all of whom need that bed. So I have to pick the one I think will die first and try and save them. These are unimaginable decisions for somebody who, who wants to be doing a good job of caring for people to make. And it's the same up and down the country. It's it's horrific. It's not because we've simply got a, a, a bad flu season. It's not because we're still getting out of COVID. Those factors are partly um, to blame, but it's fundamentally because for well over a decade now, there's been no meaningful capital investment in the NHS. There's been no investment in the workforce. We're missing over 130,000 NHS staff at a time when the population is getting older, um, developing more complications and illnesses of old age. And we've been running to the ground and it feels as though the NHS is terminal now. We're fighting so hard to care for patients. But it's impossible that the conditions are desperately bleak. And, and if it that isn't seized and owned and confronted by the government now, then none of us really believe we will have an NHS in the near future. And what would that mean, not having an NHS? You'll often, I've noticed, you'll see people on social media um, a, a, a attack the NHS and say things like, it's a bottomless pit, you know, we're taxpayers, we fund it, do your jobs properly, um, you're so inefficient. And and that's really difficult because actually all, all of that is true, um, but in a sense we get the health service we pay for. It We do not pay as anything like as much for our healthcare as a country as, for example, Americans do or the population in France or Germany do. And we have a choice. We we could say, let's, let's bin this. Let's bin a taxpayer-funded health service and let's have an insurance system. Um, you know, there's lots of examples across the rest of the world. But if we do that, that means that every encounter you have from this point onwards with a doctor, a nurse, somebody else is going to be build it's going to be totted up on a spreadsheet and you are going to be in the realm of paying um, for your insurance or for um, the excess as you'd pay the excess if you you know made a claim on your car insurance and all of a sudden inevitably there are going to be people who slip through the cracks and very often we know that people who receive the poorest quality health care are the poorest people. There are big socioeconomic gradients in health. So we could get rid of this fundamental, beautiful principle 
that in Britain, we are decent enough and kind enough as a society to provide everybody who needs health care with that health care free at the point of use. We can rip it up, but it will mean everybody will end up paying more. And it will also inevitably make for a less egalitarian system where if you have more, you will get better health care. If you have less, you will suffer. And I just don't believe many people in Britain really want that, really want to go back to a time when if you're sick, you're too frightened to go to A&E because you're worried about a bill at the end of it. I, 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 I just think we have the luxury of not having to be frightened of ill health. We might be frightened about a diagnosis of cancer, but thank heavens we don't have to worry about how we're going to pay for chemotherapy. Do people really want to walk eyes wide open into a world where suddenly on top of the fear of ill health, you've got this layer now of how on earth do I pay for my treatment? Would you have a problem with the wealthiest in society paying toward their NHS care? Well, I am not a particularly ideological person. Um, I, I'm open to all, I, I think it's good to be open to radical ideas for how to improve the NHS. I think that's really important. There are big things we could change. Um, but before we throw away the principle of universal health care for all in need, um, which would be as radical, actually, as throwing away the principle of comprehensive education for all children in society in Britain, irrespective of the wealth of their um, families. I, I think we could start by doing a few things that are a little less radical. For example, we could close the nom-dom tax loophole that means you can technically not, you can live in Britain, but not be registered to pay tax in Britain. There is an enormous amount of wealth in Britain that is being taxed essentially not at all because of nom-dom status, uh, because of offshore accounting. And it cannot be right that the richest 1% in British society pays such a pitiful proportion of the overall tax uh, quantities. So that's what I'd like to change, first of all. How do we improve the National Health Service as a matter of urgency? Because things, as you describe them, are really very stark indeed. They are. And my view is that, that this question often gets polarised in a really unhelpful way. So you'll have one camp shouting more money, more money, and another camp shouting, no, bottomless pit, you've got to rip it up and start again and privatise it. And, and of course, as with all sort of black and white, extreme polarised positions, they're, they're really not that helpful. It, it, it's much more interesting to look at where we all have common ground and can agree about obvious things that need to change. So it is obvious that the NHS needs more investment. If you look at if you look at the history of NHS funding since 1948, when it was founded, we know that for uh, the majority of the years from 2010 until now, the NHS received an incredibly small increase in funding each year, so around 1%, whereas the national average increase in funding per year since 1948 
uh, was nearer 4%. So a huge funding squeeze for, for most of 2010 to 2020. So that needs to be addressed, more investment. Um, the, the other thing that's vital is thinking really creatively and, and thoughtfully about the NHS workforce. So we don't recruit enough doctors and nurses, but also we pay very little attention to why staff leave the NHS. So at the moment we are hemorrhaging staff. Uh, four in 10 junior doctors are seriously considering leaving the NHS. And that is in part because conditions of work are so brutal at the moment. So we need to ask why are staff leaving and how do we encourage them to stay? And there are all kinds of simple measures we could take, I think, to make the NHS a better employer, to encourage people. Simple things like if you are in your 50s, you may not physically be able to do the kind of grueling 13 hour night shifts or 72 hours on call straight over a long weekend. So why not be creative and allow people 50 and over to have more flexible work plans to keep them keep them in, don't drive them away from those extremes of fatigue. There's huge numbers of things like that we could be doing. And I think too often eyes are closed and ears are closed. And instead of engaging with all of this, these practical measures that could actually help, you, you get too many government ministers who just reach for that lazy rhetoric around the NHS being a bottomless pit. And that's really just a way of saying, I'm not interested in fixing this, I'm just going to walk away. And I don't think it's acceptable that any elected politician does that. They have a duty to their constituents. They have a duty to engage, not just walk away and sort of throw names at the NHS. This is all of our responsibilities to fix. Could you spell out to us, it's pretty clear from what you've said so far that it's in a very bad place, at least in your experience. But how, how would you describe morale amongst doctors and nurses in the NHS at the moment? It's absolutely desperate. Almost every day at work, I come across somebody who's crying. It might be a junior doctor, a nurse. Sometimes it will be a really sort of tough, grizzled, seasoned senior doctor. And they're sobbing because conditions are like a war zone at the moment. And, and, and by that, I mean, we're almost having to deploy the kind of military triage of casualties that you would expect to see in a war zone. We should not be walking up and down, eyeballing patients on beds, all of whom could die without proper intensive medical care, picking the one of those that we can save. I should not be having a conversation with a dying 90-year-old on a trolley about his wishes around his end-of-life care without so much as a, as a curtain to draw around him for privacy. Nobody should die on a trolley, but these things are happening. And morale is so low, I think partly because of the the, the horror, really, of, of having to confront that face to face. It's one thing to read about these conditions in a newspaper or on a TV news channel, but to look in somebody's eyes and know that they have worked hard all their life, paid into 
to, to the NHS. And now you, the doctor in front of them, feel as though you're failing them so badly because the system is forcing you to fail them. That is a terrible thing. And, and the other thing that is so corrosive to morale is the way in which the government, who of course have the power to do something about this, to fix it, instead of fixing it, they literally deny that lived experience, these visceral encounters. They 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 say they don't exist. So, so the government refuses even now to accept that the NHS is in crisis. They won't use those words. They say no. Is it fair also to say that there is a crisis of social care and that the crisis in social care is almost umbilically linked to the crisis in the NHS and that it desperately needs sorting out? Yes, absolutely spot on. So at the moment in our NHS hospitals, one in seven of all our hospital beds are occupied by a patient who doesn't need to be there. They they aren't medically so unwell that they need to stay in hospital, but because they need social care and the social care just isn't there for them in the community, whether that's a place in a care home or some carers to go in and visit them back in their home and support them with activities like washing and eating and getting dressed. Because it's not there, they can't leave hospital. It's not safe for them to leave. If one in seven beds are filled in that way, that has a direct consequence at the front entrance to the hospital. That is part of the reason why the ambulances are queuing up outside, why the patients are in the corridors in A&E. They can't get into beds because patients can't get out of beds at the other end. And it's really obvious what we need to do um, to, to fix that. So, so carers are amazing. A good carer is an absolutely wonderful human being, incredibly skilled, amazing compassion, they will support really vulnerable patients and they should be paid properly, but they very often get only the minimum wage. If they can turn around and say, you know what, if I walk into a supermarket, I'll get paid two, three pounds an hour more than I am as a carer. And why would you not do that? Um, I, I, I think we should have a minimum carer's wage in the UK that is significantly higher than the minimum wage they get now to encourage people into this incredibly important part of our overall healthcare. Health and social care shouldn't be divided. They are intimately linked. And I just, I just wish that financially we recognised how important carers were because I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to inhabit a society that doesn't take care seriously. Caring for people is absolutely vital. So we should pay carers properly and we should also support the millions of unpaid carers who are out there quietly getting on with the job, unthanked, unnoticed of caring for relatives.
When you look back at the way the pandemic was handled at its most challenging points in this country, in Britain, do you think that there are lessons to be learned? I'm thinking actually specifically of lockdowns. Do you think that lockdowns have contributed, you might say inevitably or necessarily, to where we are today in the NHS? And do you think that if a similar style pandemic occurs in the future, that perhaps we should try to avoid lockdowns? I think that fundamentally there are huge numbers of lessons to learn from the two and a half years since the pandemic began. And again, it's not helpful to take a very strident, polarised position if what we're trying to do is figure out how to do things better in the future. So so, so there is a um, there's a very loud um, chunk of social media who absolutely, and, and actually not just social media, so MPs as well, who will decry lockdowns and say that they were the worst thing about the pandemic. They were terrible. The burden is far greater than the burden from COVID. And you know, a doctor like me who used to talk about wanting lockdown up is despicable because I've been. Um, complicit in lockdowns that have been far more harmful to the population than any other aspect of COVID. And I think that that extreme position is absolute nonsense. It's hogwash. You know, if you think back to 2020, when we had no vaccines, we were overwhelmed by COVID. We had patients filling A&Es, filling intensive care units who were dying over and over and over again from this horrible, horrible disease. And that remained the case until the start of 2021. So we, we, we had a year of horrific loss of life from COVID. Ventilators were rationed, intensive care beds were rationed. We didn't have enough doctors, we didn't have enough nurses, Patients were dying of COVID because we we didn't have enough. Um, we just didn't have the resources to care for everybody. And that was with lockdown. So if we hadn't have had any lockdowns, you can only imagine how many people would have died from this horrible disease. Now, that doesn't mean I wanted lockdowns or, or any doctor wanted lockdowns. Of course, they were a last resort. Of course, we all knew they were going to have terrible consequences. Um, you know, doctors are human beings as, uh, as well as clinicians. My mother is an example of somebody who spent getting on for the most part of two years living by herself in her little flat, very, very isolated. I have kids who suffered enormously from being locked down when they wanted to be at school, socialising with their friends. So clearly lockdowns have had very, very harmful consequences. And clearly in the future, if there is a way of avoiding lockdowns, then we absolutely should. There's nothing good about them. However, if we faced another pandemic um, where we had a completely new and highly infectious and highly um, virulent disease like COVID, if, if 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 that emerged again and ripped through the the population, we would have to have another total lockdown because the only alternative 
would be our health services being so overwhelmed that we would you know, we would have too many corpses for the body bags. Um, we we wouldn't have mortuary spaces for all the dead bodies. And, and we have to remember that that is what we were trying to avoid with lockdowns. We were trying to avoid a mountain of death that was impossible to control. Now, we obviously need to minimise any time spent in a social lockdown in the future. We want to avoid it if we can. We want to be sensible. No one is pro-lockdown, least of all me. But I, I, I think it's really important not to rewrite history and not to suggest that somehow the lockdowns happened because people happen to be authoritarian and didactic and tyrannical. But of course, that's not the case. We locked down desperately as a last resort to try to stop hundreds of thousands of people dying of COVID. And actually over 200,000 people still did die of COVID. So can you imagine the death toll if we hadn't have locked down? What was it like for you in the most difficult days of COVID when you were doing your very best for people who were struggling so badly? Well, in one sense, it was really tough, Um and I used to sort of grit my teeth and have this very uh, determinedly brave face at work. And then I would have to kind of pull over on the side of the road as I was driving home and literally just sob for half an hour and pull myself together and then go home to my family. And that was really the result of just seeing so many people dying of the same disease in the same way and the awful sort of haunting details of that, that the knowledge that I realised this in, in week one, really, of caring for COVID patients, that from the moment someone came into the hospital, they literally were destined never to see another human face again if they succumbed to COVID, because everyone they saw, every doctor, every nurse, even if they had a visitor, they would all be wearing a mask. So they never saw another human face again. And, and details like that used to haunt me. However, I'd also say that I consider myself to be incredibly lucky in an, a really profound sense in, in my pandemic experience, because I was able every day to go to work and help. Even if I couldn't stop this disease ripping through the country, I could... I could focus on this patient in front of me, this human being. I could help their symptoms. I could help them feel less breathless. Even if I couldn't save their life, I could talk to them. I could help them feel less lonely. I could set up the video call with their children, their grandchildren. And I was able to do something every single day of the pandemic. And I think I am I was very lucky to be able to do something. I think when in a time of crisis or, or um, catastrophe, one of the hardest things is feeling impotent as though this awful phenomenon is raging around you and you can't do anything to stop it or improve it. At least I was able to go in every day and try to help people. And I also saw the best of people, the absolute best of people, patients who were so brave and families who were so loving and staff who were so exhausted, but just carried on trying so hard for patients. And 
even little things like we would have mountains of pizzas arrive every day in our hospital. And those pizzas were symbolic. They represented the kindness and the decency and the humanity of the population that we knew was out there outside the hospital who were supporting us. And every box of pizza was their way of saying, we're really grateful, keep going, thank you. And so it was a horrific time, but it was also momentous in a good way because you saw so much of the best of people and of human nature. What have you gained from being a doctor, Rachel? How have you developed as a human being? Because you started off by studying PPE at Oxford University and you were a documentary filmmaker before you went into medicine. How has it, despite the struggles, or perhaps partly because of the struggles, uh, the challenges of dealing with people who are suffering and who are, who are very unwell, who are near to the end of their life, despite the, the struggles that people are facing in the NHS now that we've talked about, how has it helped you to grow as a human being? I, I honestly feel as though I've learned everything that's important from my patients. I, I really do. So because I'm a palliative care specialist, I care for patients who are often very ill indeed. They have lost a huge amount. They've they've lost the future they thought they were going to have. They have lost um, their, their functions, sometimes their ability to, to walk, to communicate. Um, they may be frightened, they may be in pain. And nevertheless, with staggering regularity, my patients surprise me with their strength of character, their resilience, the, their ability to accept their changed circumstances and adapt to them and still find meaning and beauty and love and life in the time they have remaining. And that has been mind-blowing for me pretty much ever since starting medical school. And I really believe that uh, for all of us, we are a little spark in the darkness of, of deep space, deep time. We are here for such a tiny fleeting moment. And it's hard to live with that knowledge. It's hard to, to, to live and love people knowing that your time here is fleeting and it's going to be gone before you know it. To sort of risk your heart and love people and reach out to the world and try and embrace it and allow yourself to love people with everything you are, knowing that one way or another, they will slip through your grasp because either you will die first or they will die first. That is, that's the kind of exquisite anguish and beauty of being a mortal human being. And I think if I hadn't have been a doctor, I might have flinched away from that. I might have been frightened of it. I might have never learned that. But because of my work, particularly with patients who are dying, I see this every day. And I, I know that the only way to live is to throw myself into it wholeheartedly, open heartedly, because it's all transient. It's all an experience right now in this very moment. And all of it comes down to 
the relations with people we love. No one reaches the end of their life wishing they'd worked harder or bought more stuff or had a flashier car. Not even Elon Musk is going to end up wishing he'd had a bigger engine at the end of the day. It's about love. Does living with death, being being around death as part of your job, mean that you don't yourself fear your own death? No, I don't. And that's partly because I'm I'm now 50 and I'm of an age where I've got some grey hair, some wrinkles. I certainly don't have the body I had 20 years ago. You know, all of those things that you start to lose as you get older. I regard all of those not as stigmata of um, losing my vigour. I regard them as incredible badges of uh, good fortune. You are so lucky if you get to live long enough to acquire wrinkles and grey hair. You, You really are. And so I regard every day that I live with my health, with my loving family and friends, genuinely as an absolute blessing I think I I think it's really important to try and cherish the time that we have and when I die I of course you know the thing that I think of first and foremost is that the unimaginable anguish of losing your children of no longer being with your children that's exquisite and desperate but I'm not frightened of it I know that I would live on in the hearts of my kids. I think that perhaps that is the only legacy that really counts, that really matters, the living legacy of how you have touched the people you care about and how you live on in them. I really don't think any other kind of legacy matters. And I'm also not frightened of horrible pain or symptoms at at the end of life. Um, And that's because these days, I don't think it's ever necessary for a patient to really suffer from terrible pain, for instance, at the end of life. There's no doubt that lots of patients do, and that's in no way unrelated to how the NHS is collapsing at the moment. But if you can receive good palliative care, we have so many incredible drugs and treatments and options these days that I am comforted by the knowledge that The process of dying need not be horrific and painful. The momentousness of confronting my mortality, knowing one day I will not see my children again because I'm going to die, that's a kind of anguish no one can palliate. But it's also an anguish that teaches me how to live, I guess, um, how to throw myself into life. You've got to have skin in the game as the expression goes. Do you enjoy, maybe enjoy is the wrong word, do you value having a voice? You have a a big Twitter following and a lot of people pay attention, presumably, to what you say. And you've used that voice in various ways. Is that something that you that you value, that you take very seriously, that you have that you feel a strong responsibility to? Because in a way, there are two Rachel Clarks, and, and I'm sure they're merged as well. But one is Rachel Clark, the palliative doctor who goes into hospital and helps people towards the end of their lives. And then there's Rachel Clark who writes articles, who writes books, who tweets, who stands up for what she believes in in the public sphere. Yeah, I, I... It, it, it's an interesting one. I, I, and they are definitely different people. 
in the sense that I think, like many people, I am more assertive, kind of straight down the line, uncompromising on Twitter than I am in real life, for instance. But uh, those those two personae are motivated by exactly the same concerns. And I think in a strange way, I see my, my, my Twitter self as a linear extension of myself as a doctor. So every day at work as a doctor in the hospital, I am there for one reason alone, and that is to try and help patients. I don't care about status or glory or trying to be a powerful person in the hospital. None of that interests me. I I want to help the patients in front of me. And on Twitter, on social media, or, or writing an article, doing a TV interview, it is as simple as that. I I want to say the things that I think need to be said, people need to hear that could help people, particularly that could help patients, because radical candor, being honest about mistakes, failings, the NHS crisis, things that we could be doing differently, that's the only way to improve things. Um, and I think that although many politicians are highly principled, have gone into politics because they have a strong sense of public service, there are far too many politicians who are doing it for other reasons, are playing a game, are climbing the greasy pole. Uh, You know, they like the power, the status, the opportunities for, for wealth that may come out of politics. And they will say things over and over again that they don't believe, they know are not true. Uh, because ultimately they are motivated in a much murkier way than the kind of simplicity of a of a, a sort of doctor who puts on their scrubs and, and, and simply confronts the patient in front of them every day. Um, and I think it's really important to speak out and be honest and open about the ways in which as a society we are failing patients because they don't necessarily have a voice. Dying patients are a particularly vulnerable group of patients because they're so ill, they have very little voice and there are very few people advocating for dying patients. So I feel a strong sense of responsibility to try and um, advocate for that particularly vulnerable group actually sometimes with my colleagues within the hospital and definitely uh, on a wider social level because I believe very strongly that the measure of how civilised a society we are is how well we treat society's most vulnerable members and no society can call itself civilised if it knowingly permits people to die in in misery and suffering that could have been avoided. So it's all about speaking out for patients and, and for vulnerable people. We've talked about morale in the NHS. Tell us to what extent, in your experience, being a doctor is a team effort. How important is it for doctors and nurses to get along well, to share a sense of direction, to be on the same team more than nominally? It's incredibly important. And actually, one of the miraculous and wonderful things about COVID and our horrible experience of the pandemic was the sense in which we we got through it together. We really did feel a little bit like a sort of 
band of brothers, you know, little teams filled with the kind of camaraderie that normally you'd only expect, perhaps in the military. But I think because we felt rightly that our lives were potentially endangered by by being at work. We, you know, my hospital had staff who died of COVID. Most hospitals did. That engendered this incredibly powerful team spirit that really got you through. One of the things I love more than anything about my job in the hospital at the moment is the team I'm with. It's a small team, just tiny number of doctors, small number of nurses. And we have absolutely got each other's backs, you know. We know that we can trust every member of the team. If one of the nurses or doctors has had a terrible experience, they're distressed, I will help them, I will do what I can, and I know they will do that for me too. And sometimes you do encounter situations that are utterly heartbreaking. You know, there'll be some detail about someone's end of life situation that is just so heartbreaking. And then being able to cry or shout or swear or laugh at an inappropriate joke with your workmates, that's the thing that gets you through. No one at home would ever understand and they probably wouldn't want to know either because who wants to hear about those experiences if you're not immersed in them as your job? But your team is the thing that gets you through it. And I I really wish that the NHS thought far more carefully about the importance of these little teams that so support and motivate each other. Because these days, under the guise of efficiency savings, we're increasingly shift workers that get sort of plonked onto a rotor. Then that person is replaced by someone else the next day and everybody feels a bit like a number on a spreadsheet but the human relationships that you have with a good team are so sustaining so important for morale um and i i really wish everybody was lucky enough to have the kind of team that i have at work because it's it's just the, one of the best things about the job i want to ask you about the physicality of what you do i can imagine it being a tremendously physical job you're on your feet a lot you are doing you know long shifts does it get physically exhausting as well as mentally and emotionally draining sometimes perhaps i think definitely the the hours uh which are often much much in excess of your you know timetabled hours uh you know when really works 9 to 5 they can get very, very grueling. I'm lucky in a sense because I'm out of the um, the kind of typical junior doctor years where you might start a night shift at 9pm and you literally don't finish it until 12pm the next day and you are just running around. You don't have time to sit down in all of those sort of 14, 15, 16 hours. I'm not sure I could do that now. I think physically you need to be quite young to be able to do that. Uh, Lots of people in uh, emergency departments, A&E, for instance, still will have shifts like that, even as a consultant. And that is tough. That's hard going. So I am very lucky in the sense that I I don't have quite those grueling shifts these days, although it's still physically very demanding and you if if my Fitbit wasn't an infection control risk, I think it would document many, many thousands of steps. 
as you sort of rush around the hospital from one crisis to another. It, it is physical. P- personally, I like that in many ways. I'm quite a physical person and I, I like to be dynamic. I don't. I wouldn't want a job where I was sitting down at a chair all day. But it, it, it's definitely an issue, it's especially when you're so busy that, you know, you can't even eat or drink. I mean, I, I, I remember a few years ago when I was still a junior doctor, there were times when you would you you wouldn't actually wee or all day. It would get to be sort of mid-afternoon and you think, God, it's so ironic because I'm seeing all these patients with renal failure, but technically I ought to be in renal failure myself because I haven't opened my bladder for 10 hours. And you try and go to the loo and your bleep would literally go off sort of three or four times while you were desperately trying <laughs> to, to go to the loo. And conditions that are that hectic, that busy, aren't great. Uh, they are physically very testing. So again, it would be nice if we we, we actually had the right number of staff for the patients in the NHS and, and weren't 130,000 of them short. How do you look after yourself outside work? And how do you switch off? How do you find space for everything else that is going on in your life? Well, I'm ever so lucky because I am a part-time doctor. So I work three days a week instead of five. And that gives me time to to try and focus on being a mum, go for a run, go for a swim, things like that. Um, that you know, the usual things help me, like exercise and and being with friends and family. Although temperamentally, I'm I'm a, a, a terrible workaholic. I find it really hard to switch off. I find it really difficult not to be working in one form or another. So when I'm not at work in the hospital. I'll often be at work in other days, I'll be writing, I'll be campaigning, I I do lots of things behind the scenes that are all about, you know, trying to help and support patients in one form or another. So I guess I'm not good at switching off, I'm probably one of the world's least mindful people. (laughs) And I... I have this sense that even when I'm in theory retired, I'll just be exactly the same. I seem to be temperamentally made up as a workaholic and I should take a dose of my own medicine, no doubt, and not be like that. Describe to me the power of music. Music is transformative in 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 medicine in a way that almost nothing else is, I believe. There's this amazing... A quote from Bob Marley, who once wrote, the thing about music is when it hits you, you feel no pain. And I have literally witnessed that at work. I, I can remember one incredible experience where we were caring for a patient who was who was dying and she had lots of uh, broken bones in her body because her bones were filled with cancer so trying to move her to wash her move her at all was unbearably painful and she reached the state of being terrified of being moved it was and, and she would cry she would scream it was heartbreaking and the way a brilliant nurse called Christina I worked with managed to solve this situation was not through morphine it wasn't through uh, any kind of drug it was through the medium of Gloria Gaynor. So she put on, I will survive very loudly and said, we're going to have a disco. 
And the patient, before she knew it, was singing along. They were laughing. They were loving the 70s disco music. It brought her back to her youth. And they managed to do all of the things that normally would have caused her agony with almost no pain. And she said afterwards, it was the music. I forgot myself. I just, I just loved the music. And I think music has that capacity in, in every aspect of life. It, 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 it enables us to transcend where we are, who we are, and lifts us out of that into the world of the musical notes, I suppose, in a way that I find mind-blowing. Rachel, as a palliative care doctor, and this is obviously a, a big question, and we don't have the time to examine it in great detail, but explain to me where you stand on assisted dying. Yes, it's it, so uh, this is a topic that rightly has a lot of press and publicity, increasing publicity in this country. And I think that's that's a very good thing. There are, I believe, very compelling arguments for assisted dying and equally very important and compelling safety arguments around whether or not it is a good and safe change to the law in this country. And I favour all of that being discussed, debated publicly in a very careful, very transparent and thoughtful way, because as a society, the best way to bring about a change in the law is, is not through the voices that shout loudest. It needs to be on the basis of a very sober and careful and thoughtful examination of all of the evidence. And I suppose regarding assisted dying, one of the, the, the issues I'm very conscious of is the fact that the voices of people who are dying are not necessarily heard from for the, for the reasons I alluded to earlier, if you're very weak and tired and exhausted, you just may not have the energy to, to, to speak out. Um, I don't publicly state my view on assisted dying. And the, the reason for that is simply that, first and foremost, I am a palliative care doctor and I would never want a patient in front of me either to feel upset that I spoke out about not believing in the change to assisted dying or perhaps the converse that they might feel frightened of me because I have gone on the record and said I support assisted dying. So I'm, I carefully and deliberately don't state my personal view in public for that reason. But it's abundantly clear that this is an incredibly important issue. The public have very strong views about it and we need a, a, a you know something like a royal commission to properly properly sift through the evidence and form an evidence based consensus on how we move forwards. Um, and I think it's really important that we do that. It'll be very interesting to see whether assisted dying ever does become law in this country. I want to ask you about nature because some of your patients won't be able to experience much nature in their last days or weeks, but some can. And how important is it to you to be immersed in the outdoors? I think being outside is is one of the things I love 
most in life. I find there is very little that isn't made better by getting outside into the fresh air and walking, running, swimming, uh, cycling through it. It, it, During the pandemic, I used to get home and after these horrendous days on the ward, I'd pull on some shorts and my husband and I would go cycling around the nature reserve near our house. And I used to feel as though my heart was almost so full of awe at the, the beauty of this spring and summer. I don't know if you remember, but 2020, it just felt like the sunshine went on forever. And I would be so uplifted by the bird song and the sunshine and the trees and the, the leaves. I, I, I couldn't believe that so much beauty and so much kind of horror on, on the COVID wards could coexist in one world. It just, I found it mind blowing. Um, and my personal advanced care plan has nature at its core in the sense that um, I, it really just has two very simple things. One is if I have a catastrophic brain injury, please don't keep me artificially alive. I'd rather just, just go and stop the life support. And the second thing is, even though I'm 50, I still haven't seen an otter in the wild. And it's very, very important to me to do so. So if I am on the brink of death, and in any way, it's possible to sort of drag me on a hospital bed to a river, so I can see an otter, please do that, even if it's the death of me, because I I really desperately want to see an otter in the wild before I die. I've never seen, I don't think, I've never seen an otter in the wild myself. I hoped very much to see one when I was on the Isle of Mull in Scotland, off the west coast of Scotland. And I know on your Twitter page, there's a beautiful photograph in your, in, as part of your sort of your Twitter headline photograph is, is of the Outer Hebrides, isn't it? And just an, an absolutely stunning, stunning beach. There is so much beauty in the world and otters are a very important part of that. I, th- I, I don't think we can overestimate the importance of otters in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any special skills that we don't know about but probably should? Gosh. Uh... <laughs> Do I? My children would answer that question by saying, absolutely not. No way, mum. You don't have any. I do have a good skill. I find that almost always within a few minutes of talking to somebody, they find themselves sharing very, very deep, dark, intimate secrets without necessarily intending to, and not because I'm particularly encouraging that, but I do find I will very quickly get right down to the heart of things when I I meet someone and talk to them for the first time. And I think that is, uh, I think that's a really useful skill in the sense that it means you get to know people really quickly and you can make fascinating interesting connections with people quickly and there's something about trust and truth and confiding in people just being honest two people being honest with each other that I love I think that's what life is all about so maybe that is a a secret skill I don't know (laughs) Dr. Rachel Clark, thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.